This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Many people have asked me why I was so keen to talk to Yanko Tipsarevich. After all, they said, if you're so interested in talking to a professional tennis player, why not aim for Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal or Yanko's more celebrated Davis Cup teammate, Novak Djokovic? But for me, Yanko's case was always considerably more interesting. First, there was the fact that after toiling for years in relative obscurity in the global rankings, he suddenly managed to establish himself in the elite top 10. How, I wondered, did that happen exactly? And then there was the fact that he was a notoriously thoughtful, albeit somewhat quirky fellow, with an acknowledged passion for literature and culture. How does all that fit together, I wondered, in the rigorous, uncompromising, and hardly characteristically intellectual world of professional sports? Yanko was not, clearly, your average tennis player, but that definitely made him interesting. When you're playing the juniors of a Grand Slam, that must be kind of weird in a way, right? Because you're playing in the finals or something, and like there are, what, 50 people on the stand? Like, uh, yes, I actually, I played finals, uh, and I won it actually 2001, Australian Open Juniors. Right. And it was somewhere around 20, 30 people on the stand. <laughs> and it was a big, you know, if you would have played on, let's say, on an, an outside court. Right. It would be fine, but it looks so much worse when you play on it. <laughs> exactly. It wasn't a, it was Margaret Court, which fits, yeah, yeah. let's say, 6,000 people. Oh. But with 50... So it's like an empty theater. It, it doesn't look, you know, that good. But, I mean, it's, it's the final, so you don't really care. Right. So I wanted to ask you, on your website, you've got the three people you'd like to have coffee with. Okay. And... Uh, I don't know if this is true. Maybe somebody else put this up in your okay, website. So I'm gonna, I'm throw it out there. You tell me. You tell me. So there was, there was Nietzsche, there okay. was uh, Salvador Dali, and there was Al Pacino. Okay, is that, that is that actually true? First of all, or is that somebody yeah, else? Well, that was a long. I need to really update that. Okay, so who would it be now? Forget <laughs> it. So forget about what happened before. So so who would okay, it be now? I would had... no. I would probably talk with Nietzsche because um, he is my favorite author. I read a lot of his books. I love the way. Not completely. There's a lot of stuff that I don't agree yeah, you know, sure. uh, with, but uh, I love the way because the way he writes because he uses this nihilistic approach to life where yeah. he puts everything to ground zero and start starts building up a theory from there, yeah. not including the current human morale of the 
place and time we are living at because there's so many influences on, on, on us at the time that right. we just forget what and why is this particular thing really important. So that's one. Uh, Salvador Dali, I, I think... We don't have to go back there. We can talk okay. about. We can talk about. Some I other would. Stuff. I would definitely have with. Uh, so Nietzsche is still number one. Nietzsche would still be number one. I would like to, you know. So what would you ask him? So you're having coffee. So just pretend for a moment that I'm this, you know, nihilistic uh, 19th century German guy. Best. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little, little bit misogynistic from time yeah. to time, you know, all that stuff. So what, what would you ask? Uh, him? I I honestly don't know because I think. Whatever he wanted to say, he wrote in his books. I would probably be overwhelmed. Right. I mean, talking to a guy who's been dead for yeah. a couple of years <laughs> at first, but, but uh, I would just, I guess I would ask him, like, why? Why do you think like this? And, and just ask him, trying to go deeper in, and deeper into the subject. I didn't read any of his books, let's say, in the last two or three years, which I probably should have, but uh, I would probably just be really overwhelmed having... A dead smart guy sure. sitting next to me. <laughs> well, even a dead stupid guy would be yeah. a bit overwhelming. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> uh, I would love to have a, a coffee with Al Pacino. He is uh, my favorite actor and a, a guy which I'm still hoping to meet one day. Yeah. I'm a big fan of his movies and I think all my family back home. And number three... I don't really know. I don't know why is Dali there. I think I saw a painting of him that I liked. I'm not yeah. really a big art guy, so... Yeah. No, we can forget about that. For, forget so about that's why he's dead, too. So. He's dead. So, <laughs> <forget about it. laughs> so um, you just mentioned that you, you, you don't get a chance to, to read that often. And my sense, knowing very, very little, um, just a tiny bit, when I was a kid playing junior tennis, I have a tiny little uh, understanding. But I can extrapolate and imagine that it's very difficult for you to be reading these sorts of works when you're on tour. How does that, how does that work? For, uh, I, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that when I was reading these books, I wasn't ready. You know, mm -hmm. I was too young. I was trying to read Dostoevsky when I was 16, 15. And right. that's, I see that I wasn't ready to read these kinds of books. And maybe even some of them were influencing me in a bad way, where I was being in a situation of thinking... Because all these like big minds and philosophers in, in my thinking they're seeking for the truth and most of them at the end of the road they find depression hate and something which is not really positive right. and uh, if you are surrounded every day with this thought you know why 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 then you start to question a lot of stuff in your life and of course on court why is this is this tournament going to change my life, is this important, is this real happiness, and it, the tennis is not about that. That's, right. that's exactly what I wanted to ask you, actually, because I can imagine doubt, was, I mean, this is all about doubt, it's all about self-doubt, it's all exactly, about questioning yeah. yourself. And I, I, for some of them, you know, I was, I, you know, I got this love towards literature because of my mom, she finished law, but she decided to stay home and, you know, stay with the kids, and she was reading a lot of books, so because of that, I, I, I really was reading a lot of books, but maybe it was too early to start to read some of the deeper stuff, because it really didn't influence my, my tennis in a good way. And is there a sense now, consciously, you're saying, because you're aware of this, 
well, you know, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't be reading this now. I'm not going to be, I'll, I'll put it aside. I've got a tournament coming. The last thing I need is to have my head filled with doubt or questioning I'm, my confidence exactly. or something. I'm, like I'm not reading, I'm, I'm not saying I'm not reading those books at all, but it's, it's tough to digest, you know. Mm. I mean, I love a movie or a book which is leaving an impression on me and then after finishing it, I don't, I love this feeling that I don't have a need to read another book for a next month or so because the, the last book was so powerful that I still, you know, kind of question it, disagree with it, agree with it. Right. And it's a great feeling, but, you know, sometimes it's, as I said, hard to digest. Is there a positive aspect of this? So let, me, let me speculate. So I can, it's fun for me to speculate. <laughs> I imagine I'm you, I'm a professional tennis player. Um, and... And because I have this background, because I have this interest and this passion, I can imagine it might help me after a tough loss. It might give me some kind of perspective. I might have a sense of, well, I understand the human condition or little aspects of the human condition. I have a bigger picture. I've read about you know, all these horrible things that have happened to people. I, I have a broader perspective than your typical, perhaps, tennis player in a cosseted bubble. Is there any sense of it helping in some way? I wouldn't say so that no. it's helping in terms of, you know, becoming... But a, a better tennis player in any way, you know, if, but uh, I have a feeling that I may be a, a better person, you know, because of it. And uh, maybe I understand some things which other people don't, which didn't try to read and agree or disagree with some of these authors. But th these are all, as you say, just speculations. I don't even know. Mm. Well, it's one thing for me to speculate. It's, it's okay, for, I'm just saying, a, I don't, I mean, I don't no, want to say... No, it's another for you. I mean, you're no, the one who's, is, is, so whatever you say is not speculation. No, I'm the one speculating. The, the point is that I'm, I'm not even sure. I, I don't want to say I am right. smarter or I'm better. I just maybe feel that I have a broader perspective towards life. But what I can say definitely, Nietzsche didn't really help me feel better about myself when I lose a tough match, <laughs> if that's like a straightforward answer that I can give. <laughs> So one of the things that um, that frustrates me um, and uh, is this sense that people look when you say I enjoy literature, I enjoy philosophy, it, it comes across in some circles as being pretentious. It comes across as, uh, hold on, because I'm not suggesting you are quite the contrary. No, exactly. But, yeah, but it comes across. Ahead, so so you, you don't want to. You say, well, I, I've I read in certain circles. Uh, I read some Nietzsche, or I like Nietzsche, or I'd like to meet Nietzsche, or, or what have you, or Schopenhauer, or whatever. It doesn't make any difference who it is. Um, but um, I just want to stop for one second because um, I can just pick Coffee up. Coffee is on the way, I guess. All right. Sorry, Coffee. So anyway, um, so, so there's a sense of potentially being pretentious. And, and that, I think, is really frustrating because it means that anybody who wants to read one of these books is only doing it for show. They're not actually really interested in what the material is. And do, do you find that that happens to you at all? I do, quite a lot. And I'm really trying to run away from it a little bit because I don't want, you know, to be honest with you, I am quite open to speak to you about it because I really seem really see that you know this whole show is about this and you're really interested to find a connection right but it's really frustrating for me when I get like on the press conference getting hit by let's say questions of forehand backhand you know serve schedule and then somebody just throws in uh, like a Dostoevsky <laughs> tattoo or whatever right. just and then 
if I answer, I, I even stopped answering. I was just, okay. you know, saying, please don't ask me those questions because it makes me look like that I'm trying to be smart or whatever. This, this is just a, a hobby which I like doing. There, I agree there are not many tennis players on tour which like doing it, but, you know, it's just a hobby that I enjoy and I'm not trying to be pretentious or smart because I, like, I liked reading some of these books. Some of them I didn't like. There is nothing. It's also nice when you read a full book and you say, I don't agree. This is not true. This is also helping you to have a broader perspective towards life. At least that's how I see it. Right. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the journalists. And you had talked about this a little before uh, when I cut you off because I wanted to talk about it on the camera. So now here we are. And the cameras are rolling. But as, as an observer, um, as somebody who watches occasionally, watches tennis, professional tennis players, may see the occasional press conference, although I try very hard to avoid them. And, and the reason I try hard to avoid them is it's just, it's this one raging stereotype after another. The questions strike me as just completely inane. And I can imagine that if I were a tennis player, they're, they're all the same. They're all, you know, how did you feel after you won? How did you feel after you lost? Um, there, there, there's nothing really substantial that, that, that actually seems to be going on. And I can imagine that's fairly frustrating on, on, on your side. But it, it certainly seems like it brings out this idea of almost the, the dumb jock. It's what I was saying before. It's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. You're obviously a thoughtful guy. You're obviously somebody who cares about all sorts of different things. You care about life. You have some perspective. And you're a professional tennis player at the same time. Does it frustrate you, this, this stereotypical wedging in to, to these sorts of questions? Yes. You can do more than that. After <laughs> <laughs> all that. Yeah, because you had like a question for like a five-minute question. Yeah, I know, then, I know. No, I'm so this is why I'm a crappy no, interviewer. What, I, uh, I no, I'm, I'm kidding. It's, um, if there is something to say, I really f feel the need to say it. Obviously, if you lose a match 6-2, six 6-love, six and there's nothing to say, and you just had a bad day, and it is and a disappointing loss or, or a, an easy win, there's not much to say, but if, if there's a little bit more to the story, I try to share a little bit more maybe than the other guys, try to say how I was feeling, how, you know, what I think I could have done differently or better, but really going deep into the game and into the tactic and into the mind of what was going on in important moments. But on the other hand, you know, the media sometimes is, is pretty hard on us. You really need to be careful in, 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 in what do you say because if you pick or say a few words which are not exactly on the spot, sometimes it happens that you know, they make a, a, a much bigger deal about it and, and write about it in the press in a way or in a sense that you didn't really mean to say it. Do the guys, so I don't want to put you on the spot, but again, this is just to satisfy my curiosity. Do the guys who are asking, do you get the sense that the people who are covering this really understand the game? Because, I mean, you're a thoughtful guy who talks, even in a tennis context, okay, we're not talking about literature or anything like that. You're somebody who clearly reflects on the game. You can talk about some interesting things, interesting psychological points, interesting aspects of turning points. It seems like those sorts of questions rarely get asked. And that's what I mean about being frustrating, even when I, from a tennis fan's perspective. Uh, to be honest with you, it really depends a little bit which tournament are you playing. I have to say that uh, journalists, especially on Grand Slam, really know their thing. They come prepared, they come with a good research, and most of them, you know, even ask the questions which which right which need to be asked. You know, so you can open up. Sometimes, you know, if you're not asked the right questions, you don't really have anything to say. But of course, there are some events and tournaments where you know. 
let's say tennis is a new sport and they're coming a little bit unprepared and most mm -hmm. of the questions are how are you feeling or, or how's your serve or and, and it, there's nothing wrong with that it's just let's say maybe in some of the countries tennis is not in the culture of the of the people therefore the journalists are not having a real idea what they need to to ask the player to make like an interesting interview well there's something wrong with it I understand for you you're tolerant but for me on the receiving end there is something wrong with it because I, I think here's this guy I want to get some information I want to find out you just played this match I want to know more than how are you feeling if you won I feel good when I win. well this is I guess why the I think this is one of the reasons what separates good journalists from the bad ones. You know, yeah. I'm happy that you want to know more about me and that you want to ask the right questions. But some of, some of the journalists, sometimes they just, we say they come to work from 9 to 5. And, you know, they just come because they need to be there and they ask these questions which need to be asked. And that's the end of their workday. And they're mm -hmm. not really challenging themselves or the, 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 the guy who needs to answer their questions. Let me talk more about the, the attitude that you have towards your particular interests on court, uh, sorry, off court, your, your particular intellectual interests, your hobbies, and you have lots of hobbies and they're not all literary cultural, some of them are, some of them aren't. Um, is this unusual compared to, to other people? Are there other, do you have other compatriots who are professional athletes? I, I think it is a little bit because this was one of the things which was setting me back like uh, in the years behind me because I wanted everything. I wanted to try everything and do all sorts of stuff. You know, I maybe have this feeling or, or thinking or urge that life is too short and I really want to experience it to the, to, to the fullest. And, uh, you know, life of a tennis player is not easy and I felt on my own skin if you don't give tennis 101% of your time, life and attention, you have no way in hell of using your full potential. And the feeling like when you give everything and, 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 and you fail is much better than when you, give, when you don't give everything and you fail because deep down inside you, 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 you kind of know that you could have done better. And this, this has nothing to do with forehands or backhands on the court. Sure. One of the reasons why I broke through into the top 100 was because I was always a hard worker on, on court. I had a, a Russian coach for 13 years who was really like disciplining me and making me practice really, really hard. But the difference was that outside of the court, I wanted to try... Uh, skateboarding, snowboarding, roller skating, going, uh, you know, to discos and, you know, doing all sorts of stuff, you know, dyeing my hair, doing piercings all over my body, starting to do tattoos when I'm 15 and just all these things kind of, they take away bits and parts of your energy and attention, which you could be using into tennis. So and how does it work now? I mean, now that you're not doing that, what are you doing instead? I mean, I understand going to discos is not okay. a good idea, okay. but, but I mean, dyeing your hair, to some extent, who cares? How does that work? So what are you doing instead of doing, I, doing that? Uh, I, am, I, ha I still have hobbies. My biggest hobby is music, by far. Right. I still love DJing. The only problem is that like, the time zones don't really <laughs> you know, add up because right. uh, I'm, not, I'm not going out. I mean, I do sometimes, but like ooh, maybe twice a year or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I just devote my attention towards tennis 100%. And I'm 29. I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to play until I'm 30 something. And it's only a few more years. Sure. And the, the good thing is that I'm like the more you're in it, the more you enjoy yourself. The point is that if you start looking at this lifestyle as a prison, you're yeah. going to start to resent the very thing you're trying to 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 to, to become. You know, like a, a big tennis player. Right. But at the end of the day, the more at attention to detail into, I don't know, fitness regime and nutrition and stretching and recovery and practice I, I put into, the more I enjoy it. So I'm, I'm really loving my life right now. That's great. So do you have a sense of, sometimes I imagine you'll, you'll go to a bookstore or you'll go to an art gallery or you'll be, uh, be stimulated by whatever, or, or, or DJing or whatever, mm -hmm. and you'll think to yourself, Oh gosh, I'd like to know more about this. Exactly as you were saying before. Oh, I, I, I'd like to learn more about this. I'd like to do this sort of thing more often. And then you say to yourself, perhaps, no, no, no okay, I'll, I'll wait till later. This is my time to really be focused on tennis, as you just told me now. This is my career. I'll wait till. Is it that sort of compartmentalization it, it, where you it, say, it, wait, it maybe when I'm 35 or whatever? Let's say it depends what kind of hobby is it. But let's say my biggest passion by far outside of tennis is snowboarding. I oh, started cool. driving. I started riding skis when I was two and a half years old and I was going to like mountains all over you know Serbia and Europe to like uh, ride skis and snowboards but let's say last four years it's just on hold because it's just too dangerous because of sure. tennis I love DJing in nightclubs but that part is also you know on hold or I'm not doing it as often as before because I need to get up you know the next the next day it's always okay to you know read a book but like you need to do everything in moderation because everything you do too much outside of tennis takes away and consumes energy uh, maybe from from outside it looks like we're living a maybe a boring life i don't know how to express myself but as i say if you don't give 100 percent of your attention to tennis right. it's really hard to to use your maximum potential but this is completely on par with other conversations i've had i mean i talk to a theoretical physicists they'll say exactly the same thing they'll say if i don't give a hundred percent to doing physics right now i'm not going to be able to have that breakthrough. i mean this is not unusual no, it's not the only point is that my thinking before was that even if i let's say go out and get drunk the night right. before, I would still show up the next morning at 7 a.m. on the court right. and practice. So your physicists wouldn't do that. Uh, this <laughs> is, no, this is my point. I'm taking the extreme example, right. you know. Uh, I would still practice and work hard. And then I would make double damage to my body. You know, right. I would feel bad because I did a bad thing. And then instead of recovering and, you know, I would then practice. But... Right. When I say 100%, it's not just in this moment. It's in this period right. of I'm playing tennis since I'm six so for 23 years. It's okay, you don't, you know, it's, uh, let's say when you start playing pros. It's in this period that this is the time when I, when, you, when I say now, I mean this period of days, weeks, months, years. I'm not saying, okay let's eat a plate of buffalo chicken wings and a pizza and a cheesecake and hope that tomorrow morning on practice I will feel better and I will give 100%. But it's not going to be 
the same Yanko as the guy who maybe did something different the night before. Yeah. So this is my definition of now, when yeah. I say now. I understand. Um, let me get back to this idea of the public perception of, of things. Uh, one of the things which has amused me and to some extent confused me is this idea of a role model in, in, in physics. So here, here, here's my reading of it, so tell me, tell me what you think. So you have these guys who have been playing tennis for a super long time, ever since they were little kids, and it's basically their whole life. And most of them, again, again, in my very, very limited experience, your experience is, is infinitely vaster, and maybe you have completely different examples. Okay. But in my experience, most of these people are pretty selfish, they're pretty, they're pretty egotistical. They're in this little cosseted world. They, you know, the parents are involved in some interesting way. And their whole life is tennis, tennis, tennis. They tend to be pretty narrow, parochial, close-minded, and so forth. Um, and then they break through, the top ones, and they make it. And then they get even more cosseted. They're on the national team. They're prima donnas, and so forth, and so on. And then they make it to the pros. And then all of a sudden, the ones who are at the absolute elite and make it through, and these are generally people, and I'm not you know, accusing anybody on tour now or anything like that, okay. but just as a structure, these are generally people who have lived a very protected life. They've lived a very, uh, uh, they've lived a life removed from a wide variety of things. They haven't read things, they haven't been exposed, their education is normally not super high. And then all of a sudden, because they're fantastic at hitting tennis balls or whatever, they become societal role models. And that just strikes me as very, very odd. So now all of a sudden you're supposed to look up as little Johnny, as the parent of little Johnny, look up to Superstar X. And Superstar X is the same person who's basically been doing nothing other than focusing on themselves and hitting tennis balls for 20 years. But how would you see a role model? What is the definition of role model to you? Well, I'm not, that's a good question. I'm not sure, I'm not sure I even believe in role models. Maybe, maybe that's my problem. I mean, I, if I say, when I was a kid, I was always liking Andre Agassi because right. how he played tennis. I right. honestly never cared and never knew what, what is he doing outside. Is he, you know, having a charity or marrying Brooke Shields or having a marriage with Steffi Graf or whatever. I really never, never cared. So for me personally, I experience, let's say, Al Pacino through his movies. You know, I really don't care. At least when I was a, a young boy, I really didn't care. How, what, how, and or what is he doing outside of his business or his job? Right. But all these top, top, top guys, not just in tennis, in every other sport, they have this devotion of being the best. But what I feel all of them have together is they hate losing. They really, really hate losing. And some of them are not good losers and some of them are, are let's say let's say they would say the other guy was really better than me but deep down they're thinking I'm gonna get you next time but uh, you know if it, I don't think in a in a way that you explained it from bottom to top there is no such thing as a let's say a, a role model which has every aspect sure. covered you sure. know sure I agree with you 101% that in order to be a top tennis player, you need to be selfish. You need to have a bigger ego because this you're alone. And this is one of the few sports which is, it's not easy. You don't have a teammate to pass the ball. And if it, for it's really amazing 
when you see the records that some of the players which are playing in this era now have, yeah. I mean, how bad does their bad day have to be to lose? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like they have these days that, let's say, I'm, I'm, I follow soccer and I love, let's say, Barcelona, but you have, let's say, times when maybe Messi is not performing well yeah. or Iniesta or whatever, and yeah. then... Somehow the team wins. The team wins because it's eleven of them. But you know, in these individual sports, when you have superstars which are so dominant over the last three, four, five, ten years, it's amazing how good they are being alone all this time. You can have a support of your coach, trainer. Uh, wife, uh, fitness coach or whatever, but at the end of the day when you step on the center court you are completely and absolutely alone. So why and do you think it is? Why do you think now there's, there's so much consistency in, in the absolute top players? Like if all. you ask me, yeah. my answer would be because the surfaces are much, much more similar one another than they were 10 or 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you have, I'm not undermining, you know, champions sure. as uh, Rafa or Novak or Roger or whatever, but they made surfaces which are very, very similar. So players which are on top don't have to go out of their, out of their way and change the way they play in order to win slams or big events. Rafael Nadal doesn't need to play serve and volley to win Wimbledon. If you look at it a few years ago, you had Goran, Ivanišević, and Sampras, and Krajček, and all these guys were like just hitting serves and going to the net and whatever. Now, yeah. I mean, do you really, if, if you follow tennis, yeah. do you really see the difference of David Ferrer's play on clay or on, on, on hard rod? No, it's, yeah. it's exactly the same. Yeah. He, stills, he still has time enough to run around his forehand and the surface is still fast or slow enough that he can do the same thing with a little bit of changes on each and every surface. So and this is what is creating superstars, in my opinion. So, that, so it's, it's the constancy, the relative constancy or the relative similarity of the surfaces that yes. allows for consistency of the... Uh, of exactly. The and, and so how do, how do they do that exactly? So, so I've heard that you know, the grass courts are much slower than they used to be, and you alluded to yeah, that right because now. So what, what do they do? They grow it, it, it higher was, or something? It, or what, what, how does that work? The actual technique, uh, also I have a feeling that it has to do a lot with the balls. I think, I'm not sure, they made balls a little bit bigger. Yeah. So it's not, they don't fly as fast as before, but it wasn't re a really good... It wasn't a lot of fun paying 200 pounds to come and watch a Wimbledon match where you watch Pete Sampras just... Sure, surveys you know, or whatever. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it wasn't just, it wasn't fun. Yeah. So, it was fun for him, probably. Well, probably for him, <laughs> and it was maybe easier on his knees, but yeah. uh, it's... Now, and this is one of the, I mean, tennis has evolved so much in technology as well, because if you look at, you know, the rackets that the guys were using, let's say even seven, eight years ago in comparison to now, or strings, you can get so much more power out of these. Because in my opinion, the surfaces on most of the events have become so slow that you really need a lot of power to, you know, put the ball back. And 
in my opinion, the few, if this stays the same, if they don't change the surfaces, the future of tennis is this transition, which the top two guys right now are doing the best, is this conversion from defense into offense. Right. Because the surface is permits slow it. enough and the surface permits it that you can, with the technology of a faster racket and a faster string, that you have a chance that in one or two shots you come back from, let's say, four meters behind the baseline mm. into staying one meter inside and waiting for the short ball on the forehand. The physical, it, how is it possible related to this? Because, I mean, it seems to me that this is a related point. Um, that because the services are slower, not only do you have this transition from defense to offense, but you also have incredibly long points and incredibly long matches. I mean, it's just getting longer and longer and longer. It's, it's, it's a, it seems to be unusual to, to have a Grand Slam tournament where you don't have quarterfinal or semifinal matches that go five hours or something like this. It just seems like it's a remarkable, remarkably heavy toll on your body. Is this sustainable it's, at all? It's not, I, it's not easy. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. but uh, as I said, more powerful rackets and more powerful strings are helping. And yeah. also this constant work on yourself. And when I say yourself in terms of this is technique, how can I do the most damage with spending the less energy? Because to win a slam, you need to win seven is it seven? Yeah, yeah, seven, yeah. seven best of five set matches and some of them can be on blistering heat really really hot weather new york can get so hot and humid melbourne and the australian open can get ridiculously hot and uh, but if you have the right tools meaning uh, obviously the racket and the strings but it, it has a lot to do with technique. If you look at the top guys now, the technique, how they play, they're always improving. Roger Federer is not the same player now and six, seven years ago. He's playing different. He's using more of some different parts of his body to spend less energy, but he's still doing the same or even more, a bigger amount of damage. Is there a sense when you talk about using less energy? So supposing you're playing, you're up two sets to love and and it's a blistering hot day, and you go down a break or two breaks in a set in the third set, is there, a, is there a sense psychologically that you say to yourself, okay, well, I'm just going to conserve energy and I'm going to not obviously let go of the set, but, but not push myself, or, or, or does that not enter the equation? When you in, talk about conserving it, how does that work? I think that maybe some players are doing it, but most tennis players, they, they, they don't because in my mind, all of them or all of us think the same. You need to fight for the next point. If you fight for the next point, it's going to be okay. Just don't worry about it. All of us have, let's say, uh, some of us bigger, some of us smaller entourages of, of people which are traveling with us and making sure that we are fit and ready. But at the end, you know, how many more U.S. Opens are you going to play? Two, three, four, right. if you're not injured. Right. You cannot afford not to fight for every point. In my mind and in my head, this is the healthy approach. No matter, the, I mean, if it's hot for you, it's hot for the other guy. The other guy is two sets to love down. Yeah. So uh, maybe some of the guys do it, but I, 
I would rather try because especially especially when I'm not injured and, and when I know that I'm fit enough, I would just prefer to fight for every point and see what's go, what's going to happen. You mentioned the entourages. Let me ask you a question about that because again, from the complete outside objective ignorant observer position uh -huh. that I'm in, I I look and I think, okay, if you're Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal or or, or Novak Djokovic or whatever, you've got all sorts of money. You've been winning all sorts of tournaments. You have all sorts of sponsorship deals. You can hire, you can hire a physio. You can hire a psychologist. You can hire a nutritionist. You can hire, you can you can travel with ten different people right, okay. who, are, who are there helping. If I'm number 150 in the world or 100 in the world, I can't do that. I, I, I simply don't have the financial resources to be able to do that. Does that give some sort of systemic advantage, like financially, to the people who are atop to stay on top because they have the resources necessary to be able to hire all these people to make sure that they're in the right uh, shape? In this part, I don't see that it's unfair because most of us had to go sure. through it. I didn't you say know, it was unfair. I, I'm, no, just no, saying, no, no, I'm just saying, but okay. what, what sometimes it's if I can even call it that, not fair, is that some countries or federations have funds to help their own players, let's say, in providing them with a coach and a fitness trainer, which goes from the federation budget, let's say, the USTA, and it's a great thing. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if Serbia had, you know, uh, the funds and the resources, I know they would do the same for me, but they just don't. They help as much as they can. But... Uh, in terms of that, I, I, I don't really think so. You know, I agree with you that, you know, in tennis, top, top players are, are uh, having, uh, they're earning a sustainable amount of money. But if you go, let's say, outside of the top 100, it's, it's really, it's a struggle, I have to say. And it's, it's very unfair because tennis in the world, I feel that it's a top five sport in terms of popularity how many people are playing it and to be you know 150 in the world in, in anything and just struggle to have enough funds to buy your coach a That's ticket crazy. and pay him a salary and then and, and you know feed him every day it's just it's 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 a bit unfair I have to yeah. say yeah let me go back to the question you made about the surfaces and how they're, they're quite similar and the, the, the play is quite similar and this allows for consistency of the top guys and, and so forth. Have, are other people talking about this? I mean, how, how does that work? Is there, is there a sense among tour players or, or, or the people who run the ATP that, well, maybe we should actually go back to the days of distinguishing the services a little bit more? Or are you an outlier here? In, in I don't, this? I honestly don't know. I, I think that, I mean, tennis has never been more popular. Because as a sport, we have created so many superstars in the last couple of years. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. The top guys are there because they're good. These guys, sure. there, is a, there still is, I tell you, in terms of moving and sliding and, and playing, a, a big difference from grass to, to clay. And all these top, top guys, they won tournaments on every single surface of the world, indoors, outdoors, hardcore, clay court, whatever. But uh, I don't think and I don't really feel that it's going to be a change coming soon. I mean, if you look at it before, you had, let's say, Pete Sampras, who was the, the number one player in the world for so many weeks. But still, when he comes to clay or yeah. to some events where he, he couldn't play, he was struggling. Or, 
all the Spanish uh, players who were dominating the European clay court season when the indoor swing starts, they were just, they were not playing great. Now you don't really, really have that. Right, right. Um, okay, I lost my train of thought. Can I get is, a sip is, of coffee? You can get, I'm sorry, that was Thanks. so was rude of me. You should have had, you were able to continue with that. Any, uh, no, I'm good. Just no. You gentlemen want your uh, water down beside you? You can just grab it and you're Sure. I, I wouldn't mind the water, yeah. Yeah, you can put it at your feet, because I don't see your feet. I'm good. I'm okay. good. Thanks. Do you want me to leave? I'll leave it just here yeah. just in case you feel Thanks. inspired to. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it's something that I, I've noticed. I don't know whether on camera, off camera, it doesn't matter, but. Um, because again, just as a as an observer, it always used to be that way, you know. I mean, it was a huge thing with Borg when all of a sudden he was Thanks. he was winning Roland Garros and he was winning Wimbledon, and this was you know these two polar extremes, right? That he was able to do this, and all these uh, you know all these guys from Latin America and so forth that would come out of Roland Garros and do really well, and then they'd get killed in the first round or something like that at, at, at Wimbledon. Um, and I certainly have noticed that. I think, geez, all these top guys, they're all incredibly competitive. They're always there. I mean, all you have to do is look at, you know, the semifinals of, of, of the Grand Slams. It's just incredible. I mean, it's just, it's just remarkable. It really is amazing. But if they have one big thing in common, they live very, very simple lives. They're yeah. just, their only devotion is to be the number one player in the world or to win this Grand Slam or, or, or whatever. And this is the only thing they really, really care about. Yeah. I am much, much better in the last two or three years. And this is one of the reasons why I broke into the top 10 and, you know, played London for two years straight. Right. But I was thinking that some of the things in my life are more important than they actually need to be. The only important thing apart from, you know, health of your family sure. and friends and everything, is, is tennis. And you should be pissed about yourself if you didn't do something which you could have done to be a better tennis player. And I was finding all sorts of stupid things and maybe even excuses to, to get pissed at, to, you know, spend energy on. And then, you know, when maybe the tennis match comes, I know that I didn't give 100%, which means that psychologically I was less disappointed if I look. You have a back door. Yes, you have yeah. like an alibi to, right. in your mind. And sometimes, you know, I, I know a lot of very, very good juniors who had the same problem. And I, I was, in one way, definitely one of them, because I was the number one player in the world under 14, 16, and 18. And under 18 is one and a half years younger. So wow. I was incredibly talented, but I was just stupid and crazy in my head. So when I started playing the pros, I was kind of doing some other stuff on the side. And then when I get disappointed, I wasn't really disappointed because I know I knew in myself. You had left something Yes, back. I had some, you know, if I would probably do these things differently, I could play better, but who cares? And it's like a, like an alibi, you know, which you have in your mind, which makes you deal uh, a little bit better with with a loss. And so, what what turned it for you? What when did you realize the, the, the that the big turnaround was uh, 
I remember we won Davis Cup in 2010. Right, that's when you shaved your heads, right? Isn't that we shaved our heads, yeah. yeah. Is that what did it? Was it shaving your heads? Or was it no, no, <laughs> we had the deal at the beginning of the year. I mean, we knew we could, could have done yeah. it. I think Novak was ranked number three. I yes. was, uh, uh, I don't know, top 30. We had Victor Troitsky, who was like 30, 40. And Nena Zimonich was number one player in the world in doubles. So we had a team. We right. knew we could do it. Right. We saw the schedule. We had only one away Sorry, game in Croatia. Everything else we played at home. But we never thought we could actually win it. I mean, Serbia... Really? Yeah. You, really do, you really didn't? Huh, it's interesting. You know, because a lot of things need to, you know, go together mm. for, for a country to win Davis Cup for the first time. And it's not like, you know, you had Spain or France or United States who did it like 15 times before. Not many countries won Davis Cup before. Only maybe right. 13 or 14 different countries. We have 7 million people. That's less than, than, than Manhattan. So, <laughs> no, is it? I think yeah, it is. Yeah, no, it's I think just, you're right. No, it's, it's just it's, funny. It's, that's it's all. Not, it's, it's not true. That it's true. Yeah. But, so, when I say we could, we obviously believe we had the, like, the skills to do it, but right. to win it actually would be such a, such a big deal because right. Serbia was only a couple of years a member of the world group and just by being in the world group would, was amazing so that was it it was it was winning davis cup it, it was one of the things but yeah. and then i remember i felt so much joy and so much happiness it was the best moment of my professional career and i remember i thought i mean i'm i'm 25 26 it's time is is flying i'm not a kid anymore I want to you are, make, by the way. You are a kid yeah, still, okay. but anyway. In 10 years, I'm not. I, I promise you. And I remember I thought, I really want to make the most of my, of my career because mm -hmm. I know if, if I stop playing tennis and, and, and I hang my racket on the wall and I say I'm done, I will have this huge regret which I would need to live with until the rest of my life that I didn't do my best. It's okay to fail but it's not okay not to try right and i mean in my experience when i lost and you know when you lose the first emotion that you feel is this disappointment because you lost the match if in my experience if you gave everything you could before and during the match the disappointment slowly fades away but if you didn't and you were acting stupid and doing something that you shouldn't do, in my experience, the disappointment slowly turns into anger. And then you get angry with yourself. And then you are more pissed or angry at people around you and they don't understand, you know, why. Yeah. So, uh, and it didn't come immediately. It's, it's, it's actually an interesting story. I... I First tournament of the year in, in India, I was uh, set and I think four love up against the guy in semifinals. And I lost the match and I was really, really devoted. I was like having psycho eyes, you know, really being, you know, into it 100%. I swear to you, I was yeah, never yeah. like this before. And I lost and I called my brother who I talk to occasionally and I say, doesn't matter, this is my year. This year I will be top 20 and I will win my first ATP title. Next tournament, Australian Open, I play Verdasco, a top 10 guy, having five match points and an overhead on the middle of the court and whatever, and I lost. Oh, and again, I remember I'm in the room eating cheeseburgers, being completely depressed, and 
I called my, my brother and I said, it doesn't matter, this will be my year, I can feel it. Next tournament, I fly to Johannesburg, 7 million hours trip, and uh, <laughs> I lose to a, a, a wild card, 7-6-6-7-7-6, with like match points and whatever. And again, I remember I call home and I say, it doesn't matter, this will be my year. Your but brother is still taking your calls at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, he leaves the phone and continues eating. But my point is that I was really, I was really yeah. trying and I was really pushing. And I don't know one person who tried and did it immediately from the first go, you yeah. know. But um, my point is that, again, if you try and if you give really 100%, in most of occasions, it, it, it will happen for you. You should be a motivational speaker, Matt. Oh, I, really? I, I, okay. Yeah, Any tears? <laughs> no one's crying yet? Let <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, me talk a little bit about Davis Cup, because you mentioned that was the highlight of your, of your career. Yes. And you mentioned before about how you're so alone normally. It doesn't matter what kind of a team you have, what kind of, when you step out on the court, it's just you. You're all by yourself. You have to deal with that. And, but of course, Davis Cup isn't like that. Davis it's Cup is, is, is a different feeling. Um, so, uh, were, you, were you always uh, passionate about Davis Cup? Was Davis Cup is my favorite competition in the whole year. And also, this we won two times. Uh, it's called the World Team Cup in Dusseldorf, where you know eight nations compete with each other, and we won it two times. And uh, I still have a feeling that I was born to play like a team sport because I really feel like a team team player. And these. We, I'm playing Davis Cup for this will be my 14th year in a row. 14th? Yeah. Wow. So there are a couple of guys on tour, maybe Hewitt or whatever, which played more matches than me and more years consecutively, but not, not many, many, I yeah. promise you. The reason why I play, the main reason why I play is I obviously love my country and all that patriotic stuff, whatever. But the main reason why I play is because I like my teammates so much. This, this is, I mean, if, if this week would be a struggle for me and I have to think, oh my God, I have to spend a week with these guys which I don't like or whatever, I would never have like a run that I have, you know, currently still going. But it's this so, it's, it's so much fun, like so much energy. And like, I feel like a teenager, you know, having dinner and then like the three or four of us go into mm -hmm. a room of one of the guys and just talk crap about anything and it's 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 something that you don't have on tour on tour is generally you finish your match you finish your practice whatever you stretch with your physiotherapist and you go to your room to watch a movie and recover and and, and that's it and it's not and these weeks are really really special is there a sense that you have to do that? You have to put up that barrier? So, I mean, let's talk about someone like Novak or something. I mean, you see him all the time, right? I mean, you're all... I don't when think you, you have to, you know, but it just saves energy. We still go out to dinners, you know, at, I mean, if we're all on the same tournament, at least once per tournament. But uh, it's not like we are, you know, in a room <laughs> locked up, sure. locked up <laughs> until the next practice or match. But... Uh, it's not the same it's not the same energy you know it's not the same feeling you might play the other guy you know before the draw is out or whatever and right. on a slam especially everybody is more focused on what's going on in their you know little circle or around but in davis cup it's not like that and this is one of the reasons why i enjoy playing it so much we have a good, good a solid chance of winning it again this year
Yeah, I know. Well, you're playing, you're playing Canada as it happens. Uh, very, <laughs> no, very soon. No. I think you have a... Well, whatever. Canada, I, think, okay. I think you have a good chance. Canada you, you is a good be, team, but we were it. lucky enough to... I think it was a coin toss or something that we... Yeah, you have home from home, whatever. We play home yeah. and we yeah. play on clay, which is yeah. helping our chances a lot. But, uh, yeah, well, it's the same as any other surface now. So. It helps, you know, having uh, the number one guy in the in the world as you know one of your you know teammates. But uh, you know, Pospisil is playing much better, and sure. Raonic broke into the top ten, I think, last right. week. So right, right. it wouldn't be easy. Right. Um, one thing I just want to mention about nationalism, um, because Davis Cup, of course, it has all the positive side for you of uh, uh, feeling like a kid again. You have your teammates. You're not alone out there, and so forth. But there is this this aspect of nationalism that 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 comes comes into play. And one of the things which has frustrated me, looking at the Americans, you mentioned the tennis has never been as popular as it uh, as it is now. I don't know the statistics. I don't know the numbers. But I get the feeling that it's not as popular in the United States as it probably should be given the quality of the players and the quality of the matches. And my sense is the reason for that is because there just aren't any Americans anymore in the top 10. And so there is this nationalistic identification. Am, am I completely off base? Is that true? No, no, the, the point is that, uh, I mean, just to give it to you straight, Cyprus and Agassi and all the champions before spoiled the, U, the United States of America in terms of looking at tennis players. Yeah, but why you should I care? I mean, I, I like to watch you play. I'm not serving. Okay, I have nothing because, to do with serving. Because you're a tennis fan. But yeah. you have a lot of people which are not tennis fans. And, you know, somebody will just turn on the TV. And in, the let's say, the golden era of American tennis, they, they don't care about tennis. But if they see Agassi play, they're going to leave the TV on and watch Agassi play. But if they see Agassi playing Sampras, why should they care? Because they're both Americans. One American's going to win sooner. Yeah, okay, but my point yeah. is that right now... Uh, and I, I have a, uh, I have a feeling that if we don't have like big, big champions in in Serbia in the following years, it's really going to be tough yeah. on the on the new players which are coming because, you know, you had Novak who is number one. I was number eight. Uh, listen to this: we had in the last four years, for a country of seven million people, we had four different number ones. Anna Ivanovic was number one, right. Jelena Jankovic was number one, Nenad Zimonic was number one, and Novak Djokovic was number one. I was number eight, Viktor Troit, he was 12. And so imagine in, in, let's say, 10 years when we don't play anymore, and somebody comes and is like 15 or 18, which is incredibly tough. Sure. It's really tough. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, it's really tough. People will be like... What happened okay, to you guys? What's, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what, what, what's going on? <laughs> and I know this, my coach is German and he told me a similar thing happened in Germany after Graf, Becker and Stich, you know. Some new players came which were still top 10, but they were like, yeah, okay, just... And honestly, you know, I mean, you know, John had a great week uh, in Cincinnati, but I heard, this, uh, I think it was... 50 days ago, that first time in I don't know how many years, United States of America didn't have a top 20 player, male tennis player, which is, you know, not good. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, why has Serbia, as this tiny country of 7 million, how, how has that even happened? How That's, have you guys managed to, to, to do that? Uh, maybe from like radiation from all the bombs or something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really know. I'm just teasing. I don't. Uh, 
there is no real explanation. Uh, the the Serbia as a country had a lot of political difficulties sure. in in the last fifteen years. We had a lot of wars, a lot of you know bad politicians leading our country, but. Um, um, it was all individual hard work and help from 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 our parents. I'm not blaming the Serbian Tennis Federation or whatever. It's of just course. that you know, in these tough times, tennis was the last thing on people's minds. You know. But is there a sense that there's more of a hunger when 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 people are going through difficult okay, times? In one in one way, it is. I still believe that. If you are a, a born champion, it doesn't really matter how rich are your folks or how much money do you have when you're young. Mm -hmm. But in one way, it is true that you have a, uh, like a bigger, like more hunger towards success when you come from these tough and, 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 and difficult times. This, is, this was one of the reasons why so many Russian female players were so good, let's say maybe five, Six, I think at one point they had from top 10, I think, six Russian chicks. It was yeah. really, really amazing. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it came from nothing. And it's really the, now the Tennis Federation is doing a little bit better with the programs and the kids and, you know, and everything. But it's still far, far away from what it, what it needs to be considering the success that yeah. tennis players you know, brought. A few minutes ago you mentioned Zimanech's and... and are you somebody, do you believe that doubles players as a general rule get the respect that they, that they should get? I mean, there is a certain sense as a not terribly proud Canadian. There is this guy, Daniel Nastor, who's oh, won okay. all these, all these uh, Grand Slams, all these matches, won, yeah, whatever. Yeah, okay. and, 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 and I don't have a sense that someone like that is actually given their due uh, in terms of, of the popular consciousness of tennis. Is that a general, is that, a, is that your sense, first of all? And is there a general sense of is. that on tour? I think it is. I think, especially now, you have no idea how hard, like when I was starting on the ATP tour, I really had a feeling that these doubles guys are not doing anything. Like <laughs> I never see them do fitness or never see them like stretch or whatever. Right. It was just serving, going to the net and, you know, playing ballet. But now... And I'm telling you this from what I see, what's yeah. going on. All these guys are working almost as hard as, as, the, as the singles players. And I really feel that they should deserve much more credit than getting at this moment. Hmm. And is, is the quality of the... I mean, doubles is... It, typically, it seems to be a, a, a very big spectator sport when you actually go live to the tournaments. But it doesn't ever seem to be... The fans appreciate it. They like to watch it. But it, it doesn't. Do doubles, you mean? Yeah, but it doesn't seem to get broadcast on TV at all. I think know? first of all, they need to put them more on center courts. That's one thing. The other thing, sometimes it can get too boring for a spectator because it's just too fast. The points is like mm. serve and volley, serve and volley, serve and volley, and then until something really happens, right. it, it can take a, a while, you know. But uh, Especially on grass, you know, that you right. don't see, as you say, for a spectator, I'm guessing it's fun to see this 30-shot rally with the guy making a passing shot from the fence and then everybody makes like a standing ovation sure. or whatever. You don't see very often like incredible points in doubles, you know, because the basic is like a big serve and a, a good volley from the guy who is on the net. And that's mm -hmm. not really, you know, like Hollywood... 
spectacular. Yeah. Right. Let me let me talk a little bit more uh, about psychology, if I if I might. So um, you talk about giving your all. You talk about um, the the change that's happened to you. Um, how do you do you prepare for a match differently now than you did before? Is there a sense of being mentally tougher somehow than you did before? Are there how do, how do you even do that? I I became mentally tougher since, first of all, I was working much more outside of the tennis court, which made me more fit. If you are more fit, you are able to be more mentally tougher because the mind and the body, as you know, are connected. If you are physically fragile and you get tired very fast, you have no matter the, the determination that you have, you will not be able to be mentally tough if your body is fragile or, or you start feeling pain or you get tired or whatever. So the first step is you need to be really, really fit. The second step, what helped me, is this attitude towards what, what we just talked about, fighting for every point. Don't, just don't look at the scoreboard. Don't think what's going on. Don't speculate, um, I might save energy or I might try to shorten up the point or whatever. You need to be fit enough to know that you're able to fight for every point and just keep it really, really simple. I know it's maybe a cliche and you heard it a, a thousand times. Doesn't mean it's not true. Time, but in my case, it really is like this. You know, the less I think about what should I do if this or, or the, 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 the less I speculate, the easier it is for me. But the first step is you need to be fit and ready for it. Yeah. Have you, th you must have thought about coaching. I know you've done some, I, I saw a few videos of you, with, I don't remember where it was, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the racket guys. But uh, they, Technofiber, That's yeah. it, right. So I think they made a few videos and you had these, these juniors and you were telling them, you know, you just uh, go higher over the net and don't be such, you know, all this kind of okay. stuff. <laughs> uh, but I mean, clearly you, you, have, you have a very clear and lucid and penetrating way of being able to look at the game. You're a thoughtful guy. You're an obvious uh, I, I'm sure other people have pointed this out to you that you would make a very good coach later on in your career when you're, you know, an old old guy like me. Um, I mean, <laughs> is that something which has ever crossed your mind at all? I uh, I will play tennis hopefully for a couple of more years, for but sure. uh, uh, I at this point I can say with uh, with certainty that I, I don't see myself as a full time traveling coach. But uh, I am pretty sure that I will be connected to tennis in one way or another. Uh, we opened up a tennis academy in Belgrade, uh, and it's working great. It's only two or three months old. Together with uh, uh, my coach and manager and um, a couple of other associates, we opened up a managing agency and we signed quite a bit of players. Ooh. And uh, I'm also doing the Technofiber Next Generation program, which is kind of helping and tutoring young, young guys to give them a taste. How, how is it on the ATP World Tour? But you seem to really enjoy that. I mean, I it comes, it it comes across. I really it... enjoy it a lot because, you know, a good coach, you know, it helps because I played. It really helps because sure. I have some kind of experience that I know how, how a player feels in certain kind of stressful situations on and off court. And uh, I have uh, a, great, a great coach which helped me so much and taught me so much. So I believe that at one point, if I see a, I can call it a project, 
right now and and I see the hunger and the will and, and, and the potential that the, 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 this guy can be the world number one, I have a feeling that I would, uh, I would take the, the, the challenge. I don't think that I would, I hope I will never need to coach just for the money. But uh, I hope that I will be in a position to, to take someone and bring him really to the top. When you look at the, this is, so now I'm bordering on the, the, the stupid cliche question, so cut me off if I, if I do this. But when you see the guys who are at the, uh, the guys who are number one in the world, the guys who are number two in the world, it, when people talk about talent, you are, obviously, you are obviously an extremely talented tennis player. These guys are very talented tennis players. At some point, to the guy on the street looking at this, I don't know. I don't even know what the hell that means. You know, this okay. guy's talented. This guy's, they're all talented. You're all, you know, watch you play. You can all hit every shot. You can all, I mean, is, is there a difference when you, when you evaluate taking yourself out of the equation? Do you say the guys who are, you know, uh, number two in the world or number three in the world are really much more talented than the people who are number 15 or number 20? Or is it something else that's, that's going on? Is it will? Is it focus? Is it, is it dedication? Is it, is it fitness? Is, is there a way that you can say, oh no, this guy's just way more talented? No, he, I believe that talent exists, but uh, I believe much more in the hard work that you need to put in to come to this point. You know, I have a feeling that it's more like, what's the name of the book, Outliers? Or uh, when you have to put 10,000 hours, I forgot. Oh, Malcolm, oh the Ma Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell's, Gladwell's book. Yeah. Uh, yes, um, um, I keep thinking Blink, but that's the other one. Yeah, or whatever I, it is. But, yeah anyway, yeah, the, the point list, is yeah. that I have a feeling that it's more like you put in the work. Right. But it's not just work on court, it's outside. It's what I promise you, it's, it's watching YouTube videos. How is this guy moving his feet? Why is he? This is also work and research, which you need to do. You, you shouldn't, as a professional, wait for your coach to spoon feed you the information. You need to be the guy who does that. And I have a feeling it's more like work, work, research, work. And then at one point it will click and you will say, oh, there it is. And then when you, when you grab it, you start working on it and processing it. So I, I still believe that the guys at the top are working more and are bigger professionals than the guys which are not at the top. Hmm. So I believe in talent and you can say that some players are more talented than the other ones, but I, I am a much bigger believer in this finding the way how to become this guy which is on the top you know so natural talent's not the dominant factor no in, in no no I, I i know quite a lot of junior players which played with me and were actually better than me which were incredibly talented which had such a great touch and you know could do with the ball amazing things but they never you know broke through because they didn't accept the, 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 the hard work which comes in between to put that talent into, into actual play. Mm -hmm. What does your coach, give me an example of something that your coach will say to you that you, that you won't be able to, you won't notice yourself or perhaps, perhaps you will notice but won't appreciate. What are the sorts of things that a, that a professional tennis coach at your level would, would say to you? How would they help no, you? A good coach, in my experience, he tells you stuff when you need to hear them. It's not about, okay, you made a mistake, this is the mistake. This okay, because you know that, right? Yeah, this doesn't yeah. really help, but uh, it really, really depends uh, on the situation. For example, today, 
we had an hour practice on one of the courts, and uh, I I I played horrible, but I didn't really I didn't really try in the best possible way. I was you know staying too far back or whatever, and then we had 15 minutes gap between one court and the other one, and we sit and we talked, and he said, "We have 45 more minutes." I know I, I wasn't feeling great today and I know you're you're feeling lousy and it's you know hot and humid and whatever it's just not your day you stood up on the left foot we say back in Serbia and um, but just do this this and this and just focus on these three things focus on I think he said your ball toss on your first serve focus on moving your your feet because my feet were just horrible today on moving your feet after you hit the shot right after you hit the shot and stay down on the return. Don't go up with your body. And don't think about anything else. I believe in simplicity in terms of coaching. Because if you feed your player too many information, then he starts you know, overthinking and not focusing on the right things. You know, I believe in the way of coaching that you find one or two or three things, Max, that you should focus on and just let the player find its own his own way because as i said at the end of the day you are completely alone on the court the right. coach's job is just to pin you know push you in the right direction so you find the highway how important is being able to uh, well it's obviously important so let me start again how uh, to me as again as a spectator i look at the level of anticipation the top players have. I look at how soon they're able to actually pick up the ball off the opponent's rackets. To me, that's just shocking compared to the way it was 20 or 30 years ago. Is, am I completely off base? Or that seems to be one of, one of, when I look at the top players and the way they move and the range and how they're able to, to turn defense to offense and how they're able to do that, I think the only way they're able to do that is by being able to anticipate so much faster than they used to. Am I off base or? I don't know how, honestly, I don't know how it was 20 or 30 years ago. Right, but you're a young guy, right? I forgot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Most or almost all of the top guys, the idea when you step on the court is that you obviously need to know a little bit about your opponent. But the general idea is that you have this boss attitude on court. I am here and I will play my game and I will try to make you dance as I play. When you try and play your game, you anticipate much better because if you're the guy who is trying to push the other guy around, it's much easier to see where the ball is going mm. rather than being too defensive and just, it's called, are you acting or are you how we call it at least uh, are you acting or are you reacting if you're acting and you have this okay i'm going to do this this and this it's much easier to anticipate and if you're reacting on what the other guy is doing then you're suffering much more because you know you're always on the back foot you're being pushed around around the court and Nobody has ever played great tennis just by being defensive. You know, defense is a big part of tennis right now because, as I said, surfaces are much, much slower than before. But nobody ever was, you know, a top 10 player ju just and only by being defensive. Cool. What frustrates you the most? But if you were king of the ATP, or, or if you were king of the world for that matter, let's go to king of the world and then we'll move down to okay. king of the ATP. <laughs> if you were king of the world, what, what would you... 
What would you do differently? Well, that's a it's kind of a stupid, it's a stupid question, but uh, <laughs> okay. I, I ask a couple of stupid questions every so often. Uh, what would I change, or what is fr or what was the, what's yeah. frustrating me? Yeah, that's a stupid question. Well, let me just forget about. It. I'll forget about the whole question. Okay. <laughs> um, let's talk about the ATP. Is there anything that needs to be changed in professional tennis? Is there anything that? Uh... <laughs> I'm going to be in the news again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, anything you want to tell me? That you know, you're not you're not compelled tough. to tell me anything. But uh, is there anything that? Grand uh. um, Slams increased the prize money, which is great because right. they're aware what I told you that tennis has never ever been more popular, and this is my you know, I mean, and I'm talking I'm not only talking about guys here, I'm also talking about <laughs> chicks, right that in the last few years we have so many more champions. And this is a good thing. And I'm not talking about the top guys because top guys are having their endorsement deals and whatever I'm talking about. But we spoke about the guy who is 150 and doesn't have enough funds to you know, help his uh, coach. I'm not even talking about entourages or his girlfriend or wife or whatever. So uh, that's better. That's a step in the right direction. And um, <laughs> it's so tough. I'm definitely. I better just keep my mouth shut. It's. It's. it's, it's oh, you really can't do that to me. No, you no. can't. You can't. You could have just said no. You know, no comment, or I'm not. I don't have anything to say, or I'm not interested. No, it's. A, it's a constant. It's a constant fight. You know, but uh, slowly, step by step, it, it is getting better. The only difference is that players are the ones which need to take the initiative. So what? 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 What about this? So there was. Uh, there was this whole business of Roddick before he was talking about uh, maybe having a more active role now that he's out of tennis, maybe okay. more union, maybe distributing prize. I don't know if that's where you're going, um, about making sure that people who are lower down actually get a bigger slice of the pie. Is that, exactly. one, is that that's the, where we're this, going with this? This, this? this is one of the things, I mean, it, it has changed because the, the increase of the prize money, if I, I, I'm really not following this. And even though I had a chance to be in the council, I don't want sure, to because, because you gotta it's focus. Just, you gotta it's, focus. Yes, it's taking a yeah. lot of your energy and time, but uh, the increase of the prize money mainly benefited the, the lower ranked players because most of the money was pumped into the first four rounds of a Grand Slam. But I still think the, the, the step into the right direction should be that uh, players which are ranked 150 or 200 or whatever, or whatever are benefiting more from from playing tennis, from but playing professional. But tennis. what's wrong? So you were, you know, you're worried about all sorts of things, but uh, about being taken out of context. I understand, given your profile and so forth. But what's wrong with just using the media and saying exactly what you're saying? What's wrong with saying, look, it, there, there really is an asymmetry that's actually not healthy for the sport. That we have to balance things a little bit. That these guys who are 150th in the world are incredibly phenomenal tennis players, who at the same time because of the structure of the system, really can't uh, sometimes make ends meet, for goodness sakes, given, given the structure. I don't think that people want to hear that. They don't okay. really care if the guy who is 150 has enough money to pay his coach worldwide. This is my... There's a sense like, that they just think, oh, these are spoiled athletes. That's just, so yeah, I mean, why? 
this is and but then if you i'm i'm not you know uh, crying here for help no, or course, whatever but course. i'm just saying that the general difference is that the general media and the general population they i can promise you they really don't care if the guy who is playing qualies at the us open and is ranked 150 has enough funds to support his coach to come here with him I swear to you, they don't care. I'm sure you're right, but it, but objectively, it's better for the game, right? I mean, and so if you're a tennis fan, you would say, look, we have to do what we no, can. No, this is why I say it, it is a step in the right direction. Right. I just feel that it, it could be a little bit, you know, right. better. Right. Okay. Anything else I haven't asked? You've given me an awful lot of your time, so I don't want to... I'm, I'm really good. I had a very, very... I, it's, I cannot believe it's one and a half hours already. But I had a really, really long I know, you look at, you're looking tired. You had your devil espresso, you're still looking tired. Yeah, so i got to let I you am. go back and, and win this thing. Because if you win this thing, man, I mean, I know you want to win it. But, okay, I mean, but think of what it's going to do for me. Yeah, I mean, that's a, focus. That's a additional motivation. <laughs> okay, thanks, Lajanko. Thank you very much. Fantastic. I hope it was, it was good. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Social Psychology, along with separate discussions with Roy Baumeister, Carol Dweck, Barbara Fredrickson, and Philip Zimbardo. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.